Hi, this is Brendan LaSalle, and when I'm not explaining to my relatives that I don't actually write choose-your-own-adventure books, I'm listening to the award-winning Spellburn Podcast. Alright, go mighty one, our sacrifice begins. We commence. To Spellburn, a podcast about the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. It's time to party like it's 1974. This week on Spellburn, we take a look at how to create a supernatural patron. Patrons are one of the coolest and most unique aspects of Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. Every judge will have a reason to make one as a foil, as a PC ally, and of course, just for the fun of it. We'll talk about how to generate them, how to fine-tune them, and what distinguishes them from the other fickle entities like the gods. All this and more on this week's episode of Spellburn. Alright, well welcome to Spellburn, our supernatural make-your-own-patron episode. And uh, special thanks to Noah Stevens for our patron entry winner, uh, and we'll get to that in short order. I'm Judge Julian, and with me are Judge Jen. Hey guys! And Judge Jeff. Sup? And we're going to head on over to Tavern Talk. Welcome, friends. Good to see you. I only had one drink to calm my nerves. And give it a drink of your most expensive. Tavern Talk. All right, here we are in Tavern Talk, where we discuss gaming and what's hot, what's not, and what we did in the last week. Judge Jeff, would you like to kick it off for us? Well, sure. So uh, this week I had a very busy week in gaming. I went on up to New London, Connecticut for Drinking and Dragons. Woo-hoo! And it is at a brand new venue. The The restaurant bar that it had formerly been uh, taking place at has closed. Oh, man. And now they're in this kind of like a very cool kind of creepy former community center that's like right on the edge of this very kind of creepy haunted witchwood uh, which I believe is called like Gallows Woods or something, because apparently they hung some witches there, or they hanged some witches, rather. And that was really fun. I ran They Served Brandolin Red, and it was my first time running an adventure. And if you hear lots of thumping around in the background, those are my uh, two cats, Hugh and Shanna, who are <laughs> wrestling quite vigorously at the moment. So uh, please forgive the background noises. <laughs> yep, that's them. <laughs> The kittens will not be restrained. Exactly. But given their names, they are. Um, it is still thematic to the show. So they, 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 have, they have a part here. <laughs> so um, so I, I, I ran my first DCC game at Drinking and Dragons. Previously, I had only been a player. And I ran They Served Brando. Really? Yeah. Because uh, the first time I went, I played in a Tim to Shane game. And the second time I went, I played in a Joy Royale game. So this time I ran my own and ran They Served Brando and Red. And the crew that was playing at my table was absolutely bonkers. And then the very next day, I ran They Served Brendolin Red again in Brooklyn, this time for my DCC meetup group. And it was also exciting because I'm dating this new guy who has been playing Dungeons & Dragons for a year, but has never played Dungeon Crawl Classics. So it was his first time playing Dungeon Crawl Classics. 
And uh, so it was fun introducing him to the game and also playing the exact, running the exact same adventure for two completely different groups two, night, two, two nights in a row. I had not had that experience yet either. Um, and the two sessions could not have gone more differently. Um, both were really fun. But one of the things that I, it was really helping me see that one of my favorite things about the game, about Dungeon Crawl Classics, is if you get out of the way of your, of your player's creativity, they're the ones who are really writing the experience that we're having. You know, um, I, I really feel like some game systems really kind of don't make enough space for players to really just kind of go nuts with it. And our system does. And that's, I, that's one thing that I really love about playing Dungeon Crawl Classics. And I really got to see that in action uh, these two nights in a row. Uh, what have you guys been up to this week? You mean in between periods of Servitude to Grimtooth and the Darkmaster in general, right? Precisely. Um, yeah. Uh, there's been another session of the Expedition to Barrier Peaks, and we continue getting our asses handed to us. Um, got in a little bit more of uh, the Rogue Trader game, which it it's kind of cool. I, I honestly prefer Dark Heresy a little bit more, but this one... The GM knows everything, like, he has encyclopedic knowledge of every single thing going on, you know, whether it's on screen or off, so that, that kind of adds something for it. Um, this past weekend, there was a Halloween board game night at some friends of ours, so we went and uh, I ran Mysterium a couple of times, Ooh. and talk about completely different games. Let's see. Then I got to sit down for some Red Dragon Inn, and quite possibly the best part of the night was uh, we walked in, and one of our friends that we have not seen for years was just sitting there waiting for us. And, I mean, PJ was part of my first road crew game that I ran over five years ago, so very cool. It was it was really a, a special treat to see him there. And this weekend we have a session of Metamorphosis Alpha planned, and there's a Halloween game night at Dungeon Games. So of course we are signed up to run at least two sessions of DCC, and I have decided that I'm going to run the Sinister Sutures of the Semstress twice. Mm. Cool. Um, it's a sixth-level adventure, and it's really cool because there's one guy in there that has never heard of DCC, but has heard of D&D. So I think he's a brand <laughs> new person to the role-playing wow. games altogether. And another guy has never played, but he already has the book and his dice, so he is ready to jump in. So I think it'll be exciting to throw him into a high-level game right off the bat. Hey, dude, this is the stuff you can do. Okay, now that you've done that, you can either sit here and play this again, or you can move over to Bob's game, where I think he's going to be running this year's Halloween adventure by John Hook. Hmm. Um, but we're going to have two tables, two games each at least, so... Uh, we'll see what unfolds from that, but it's all absolutely horror-themed, so I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah! Yep. Julian, your turn! Uh, what you been up to? I had a great game of Crips and Things with Gronyard Extraordinaire Mark uh, Wood, uh, my, my friend here in Minneapolis. We had our first character death, Rowdy Ryan Hickson, his thief mining is finally 
he arche what what do you call it? He archaeologisted a little too deep into the delve one last time, and uh, it didn't go, <laughs> did not go very well for him. So that was pretty that was a, a sober note. But we, we've been having a great time in that campaign, and this weekend I'm preparing to run uh, this sort of a playtest for my GameholeCon game of the DCC MCC mashup. Um, what? I, and I've got seven people coming on Sunday with pizza and beer. And it's I, my plan right now is I'm going to start it in a bar and with sort of an imminent bar fight and just kind of go from there. But I'm going to run it with DCC characters with who have mutations, who can either choose mutations or artifacts to start with. And then hmm. we're going to... And then we're going to see what happens from there. And this... I don't, you know, it's, let's just say that this is an idea that will probably be fun, but may require some fine tuning along the way. But um, anyway, should be, should be a good time. Awesome. Uh, And I want to, to, by the way, give a special shout out, uh, speaking of cons, upcoming to our Minneapolis DCC RPG representative, Big John Dahlstrom who is going to be at PAX Unplugged in Philly, November 17th to 19th. Um, especially since this is an open convention, so apparently people don't register for games there like they do for most things and have a set schedule, but they have a big table and people just show up and play, which is pretty cool. Huh. Um, so I, I guess there is going to be a Goodman Games booth. Go to the booth, see what time people are planning to be there and run stuff, or go to the G Plus DCC RPG Contact group, uh, which, by the way, is a great place. It's a great resource for all conventions, including GameholeCon next week. And, uh, you know, just uh, see, go check it out and see what's up. And if you haven't heard about it, John's uh, Time Bandits of Earth uh, session at Gen Con was uh, apparently quite a bit of fun. Heard a lot of, uh, heard a lot of screaming and uproarious laughter over there. All right, uh, I think it's about time for us to summon some email. I call upon the flame to summon you. Who will deliver the message for me? I came here to give you these facts. Summon email. All right. Uh, Here we are in the summon email portion of our program. This one is an older one uh, that we've been delaying because we're a little behind on our homework. But I wanted to read it and... And then we'll we'll talk about the uh, the homework portion of it later. But it's from Andrew Hay, and it's a very short one. He says, "Greetings, judges. I enjoy the show. We at the Keep Studios recently published our first adventure module. There are more on the way. Please take a look and tell us what you think." And the adventure is called "Sword in the Jungle Deep," and he did uh, attach a reviewer copy. Uh, it is available on Goodman Games and uh, Drive Through RPG. So this is uh, at this point uh, three, four months old. So uh, we are a little behind, and we, uh, Jeff and I, at least, are going to uh, review this adventure on our next episode. So apologies, Judge Andrew, but we are getting there, and we'll give you, a, you know, probably a nice short little capsule in our next uh, episode. Absolutely. And maybe we can get Jen to review it as well, but, you know, she's a busy gal, so... (laughs) (laughs) 
edit, 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 edit. Yeah, yes. Jen, you can you can edit it for him. Oh, that's mean. <laughs> we we don't know that it hasn't already been edited. But, that that's actually not cool. But you can do an additional edit just for cool. fun. Uh, no. <laughs> All right. No, no, no. Judge right. Jen. Grimtooth will have words for me. <laughs> yes. I, do you smell a, a Grimtooth trap right there? Uh, uh, yeah, with my name on it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, in lieu of homework, uh, I I get to read an essay on air, apparently. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This one comes to us from Judge Julio. Hey, judges. This time I'll go straight to the questions. I was listening to episode 51, Third Party Classes, and I was wondering, most of the classes have a racial counterpart. Dwarves are the counterpart for warriors, halflings for thieves, elves for mages. What about clerics? Any thoughts on why this is the only class exclusive to humans? This is the kind of thing that could lead to a metagaming where humans must be clerics if there are players using the other racial classes. Uh, the second one. I started thinking about a house rule I'm about to test, where the character needs a number of games equal to the level he or she intends to achieve. In essence, if the character is level 0, they need to play one adventure to level up. And if they're level 1, they need two adventures. Level 3... I'm sorry, level two, you need three adventures, and so on. And what do you guys think of this rule? Uh, You know, we'll tackle these in just a second. Uh, Question three. Also, I was trying to create a great plot twist and tricks for my campaign, something like the Infernal Crucible of Cesargon the Mad. It leaves not only the characters, but also the players in a tight spot, and it's something to make people think it will always work and is jaw-dropping. What are your advices on creating other plot twists and tricks to surprise the players? And when trying to create my campaign, I imagined some kind of recurrent enemy, something between the Snake Men from Ur-Hadad and the classic Aztec Lizard Men. And I was thinking about ways to give it a taste. For example, even though it's not DCC, but is great GMing, Chris Perkins, on his games for Acquisition Incorporated at PAX, uses the quote-unquote green flame. When you see the statue of a devil with a bowl on its hands, it is burning a green flame. When a wizard controls a skeletal dragon, it breathes a green flame. I know DCC has this thing with purple tentacles, but what would you suggest as other ways to create recurrence for enemies? And finally, I just started reading the Appendix N literature. Uh, some books like Elric of Monebene, Conan, and John Carter series are finally being released here in Portuguese in Brazil. Others like uh, Zelazny and Abraham Merritt I had to import, all worth <laughs> the fun and flavor. What are your favorite non-Appendix N literature? Ooh, non-Appendix. Interesting. Mm. Uh, looking forward to be uh, one day be part of your game table. Untrained, uncertified, but fire tested, Judge Julio. Okay, so we've got probably three or four emails worth right here. Let's, you know, let's tackle the first. Um, anything, any thoughts on humans, clerics, metagaming, etc.? Okay, so I've been on this show long enough that I can now start espousing uh, controversial opinions. <laughs> and my controversial opinion that I'm going to say here is uh, there's no racial counterpart to clerics because clerics are stupid and we don't need them. 
And, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, the- Lankmar, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, I have never understood the distinction in Dungeons & Dragons, Dungeon Call Classics, any of the fantasy role-playing games. I don't understand why clerics and wizards are separate. I don't understand why with arcane magic you can't heal things. I don't understand why with arcane magic you can't make undead creatures flee away from you. It makes no sense to me. Uh, and in fact, in my in my campaign games, wizards can cast cleric spells, and also wizards first level wizards aren't aren't stuck with first level spells. You can cast fifth level spells too. They're just harder to cast, so you you lose them more often. I also don't understand the idea of why a first level wizard can't cast powerful magic. Doesn't make sense to me, so I just ignore it. Uh, so my my theory for why you don't have a racial counterpart to clerics is because really clerics are kind of tacked on anyways, and I think don't even really need to be there. That's why. The end. Thank you. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> that, that that is a whole episode right there. Abolishing the cleric. But you know, but let's let's hold let's hold that thought for patron discussion later because. The differences Ooh. between gods and patrons and clerics and wizards is very pertinent. We will discuss this further. Okay, so to the next one, where the character needs, or the player really, needs to have played a number of games equal to the level they're trying to achieve. I actually have a thought on this in that it's a great concept, but you're going to max your characters out pretty quickly, especially if a single adventure is a single session. And if you're cool with 10 or 12 sessions being the max, well, I, I suppose it's uh, incremental, right? So you're looking at closer to 25 sessions. So mathematically, I did the math. It's it, so it would probably be, it would about be 55 a year. sessions to get from zero to 10th really? level. Really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Interesting. All, all, all I'm going to say is... This is an extremely good house rule because I already use it. And um, it, <laughs> so this is what I'm doing in my Ravenloft game. And I've actually used this sort of as a, as a projected rule in different homebrew things I've done. And uh, I love it. I think it's a great, I think it, um, instead of people grubbing for artificial experience points and other stuff, I think it gets people to, do what you want them to do, which is show up for the session and engage with the campaign. And, you know, the the, the real reward that you get in-game yes. is to actually be involved in the game, right? So, um, I, okay. I just, I, you know... So do you go with one session versus adventure? I go sessions. Because the, the, num- sessions. the number of games versus one adventure, to me that's kind of rough because I've had some book modules take two and a half game sessions yeah well so it, that's where my sticking it, point it was. depends what your um it depends of course on the game with dcc um and and possibly with others as well certainly adventures can take more than um one session so i think it would be reasonable to to class it as adventures games. but at the same time you could keep it sessions and just not level people up until they're done with an adventure and you know, which is what we do with XP typically, or many judges do with XP anyway. So, you know. Um, anyway, I won't beat it to death, except that this is actually what I'm doing in that little white box Gothic Ravenloft um, campaign I'm running. 
and I think it's nice. You know, it has a nice. It's actually not what a, one of the great things about DCC is their experience point system, and it's pretty similar. I mean, I think that very light, simple system is actually pretty much, you know, yeah. built to still feel old school but accomplish this very thing, right? You know, you get you get experience for encounters no matter how they go or what happened and you in a session you have encounter you know i mean i think it's pretty similar actually all right that's fair and i like it because it also supports the kind of the kind of gaming that i like because personally i feel like if you have one session that's really combat heavy and another session that's really investigative and another session where you guys are spending a lot of time interacting with npcs i'm not sure i understand why one session should be worth more experience points than another that is entirely fair. Yeah. Okay. So we're pretty much in agreement on that one. Uh, the next point, I'm not sure how much you guys have looked at the Infernal Crucible of Cesarecon the Mad. Um, Love it. For our listeners, if you have in your possession the DCC core book printings one, two, or three, it is the second adventure in the back of the book and I think it's like level 5 or, or 3, don't quote me on that one um, unfortunately the one I have in front of me on my desk is fourth printing, big help Jen uh, so getting to the point here leaving the characters in a tight spot or throwing plot twists and tricks, I know it's kind of broad but do either of you have an instance you could throw out as an example um, well, this adventure, the, if you don't know the Infernal Crucible of Sazrakhan the Mad, um, get a copy and read it. It's a great adventure, and it should... I th did they reprint it in Chaos Rising? I can't remember. If not, they should... I believe yeah, they did. it should be in there. You could Good get call. it for free, I'm sure, if you poke around in enough dark alleys and stuff. You know, hey, kid, you want a DCC adventure? <laughs> no, um... We 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 don't we don't promote no, that no. of course but no. <laughs> Captain Urban Safety says don't go to dark alley. Okay, but um, it is a great adventure. It's well worth playing and running. Um, it's very short. You could run it in probably two hours, and um, I ran it in fact out, out of the beta rules when I was desperate to playtest DCC, and. Uh, the group I had, it it was one of those adventures that um, the person you think is going to be the jerk is the jerk. I mean, it was just great. It's like administering a personality test. That's all I'm going to say. And nice. uh, so, you know, there are other adventures that I think are kind of similar, like the balance blade, I think would be one of those. Um, oh, yes. So... Um, what I think about it is bring those on, you know, um, do them, try to do them. And um, you, what you'll find if you tried to write an adventure like the Infernal Crucible or the Balance Blade, uh, you'll find that it doesn't seem hard when you read the adventure, but writing a good one uh, is more difficult than it looks. But, you know, so do it over and over and get good at it, and you'll love it, and your players will remember those um, sometimes fondly, and other times maybe not as fondly, depending on the players, but, uh, you know. I, I see what you mean. It it does kind of go against the grain right, when you're writing something like that. Yeah, I, I, it, it's, it's all... 
It's counterintuitive. Well, we, it's not what you would expect. There's no reason if you look through Appendix N literature that we would assume that everybody who goes down into a dark hole to grub for money is an entirely, like, happy, cooperative, holistic, homeopathic, healing bunch of murder hobos, right? I mean, I'm just... I'm going to go out on a limb. So... So anyway... <laughs> um, I, you know, plot tricks and twists, I mean, absolutely. What? What? Why not? Anybody disagree? Awesome. You got that one. Okay. Um, so next, Jeff, do you have anything besides purple tentacles that you use as ways to show that this is your recurring enemy? Um, at the moment, I don't really have a lot of experience with um, kind of creating a kind of overarching kind of Skeletor style, you know, the villain is kind of constantly coming back and laughing at He-Man style villain. Um, but um, yeah, I don't really know. One thing that I really dug, I recently read Kothar the Barbarian. And one thing that I really liked was in the, was in the first story, he ends up kind of crossing this uh, witch named Red Lori. And Red Lori puts this curse on him. And if I were if I were to have such a villain, I think I would borrow heavily from the way that Red Lori was portrayed in this first Kothar book, because she puts a curse on him, saying that everywhere he turns, she is going to be following him, and she's going to be um, uh, like messing with him at every turn. So there's constantly things that are happening where he suddenly thinks he sees Red Lori's face, like maybe in the flicker of a flame. Or somebody has crossed him, and like she, like this person turns their head, and he like sees a flicker in their eyes that reminds him of Red Lori. I think it'd be really fun to kind of play with your characters and and make them paranoid that this villain is out to get them. Because perhaps sometimes maybe the villain really is behind it, but maybe other times they're just so afraid that the villain is behind it, but actually it's completely innocuous and has nothing to do with it. I think that side of it would be a really fun thing to play with. Ooh, I like it. Okay, and then. To tackle the last point here, what are your favorite non-Appendix N literatures? And I think we're talking about in gaming as as far as the genre would pertain. You um, mean not not John Milton Paradise Lost? Uh, well, I'm sure you could spin that. <laughs> I mean, it's DCC. You well, could spin right. it, dude. Hey, you've got <laughs> hell. You've got Satan. You've got you know patrons. You got the ultimate sure. patron. Yeah, why okay. not? Never mind. Okay. Um, I'll go. I'll tell. I'll tell a funny, very brief, funny story, because I was at Gen Con looking through the books at the Goodman booth. They, they, hey. thanks to someone, they had a little spinner racks with a uh, with all these cool Appendix N paperbacks out there, and so I was just totally entranced. And mm -hmm. I'm looking at the spinner, and uh, making some small talk with Judge Michael Curtis. And I, and he says, do you see anything good? And I said, well, I really want some Clark Ashton Smith. And I said, which is rare, right? But, I mean, also one of my favorites. So that's my favorite, non-Appendix N, apparently, because Michael says, well, you know, it's just Appendix N literature. And Clark Ashton Smith was not Appendix N. And I said, he was <laughs> right. too. And he's like, no, I'm, pr I'm pretty <laughs> sure he wasn't. And that's at least that's what Judge Jeff told me. <laughs> and he and these are his and he set these books book spinners up so 
And I said, look, man, I was reading Appendix N when Judge Jeff was in, was in short pants. <laughs> so believe me. Um, so believe me, Michael, when I – and anyway, I was totally wrong. And, you know, there you go. So, of course, Michael Curtis says, like, here's the handy reference of Appendix N, right? You know, yep. like, okay. So, anyway. <laughs> Julian, if it makes you feel better, it is nice. true Clark Ashton Smith is not in the official Appendix N. However, there is an inspirational reading section of two of the three versions of the basic sets that came out. And Clark Ashton Smith is listed in both of those. Ah, oh, awesome. I did not know that. But, of course, it makes perfect sense. And he's right in, he's sort of that weird, you know, in-between thing, like half Jack Vance, half Lovecraft, sure. with a dash of Robert Howard in there. You know, I mean, he's just awesome. I will throw into, I will add to this as well. There is one other author who is also not in the Appendix N, but is also listed in both of those inspirational reading um, sections. Can you guys guess who the other one is? If only we had somebody on a podcast who's done all of this searching <laughs> who, who could tell us this crap, because it ain't it, me. <laughs> it's it's H. Ryder Haggard, surprisingly. Huh. And I've okay. not read any of his stuff yet, but yeah, H. Ryder Haggard is, is on there. Yeah. Surprisingly. That, no, that makes perfect sense, hmm. because um, even though... It's not the. It's not that it's in the fantasy genre as much as that. That's what those guys read because it was pulpy and goodness, right? Well, I'm just gonna put a little plug in for something a little bit more modern, like the 80s and 90s. Um, Robin Hobb, who is actually Megan Linskold, but that's her pen name for the Live Ship Trader series. I've actually heavily borrowed from that series for the campaign that I was running. And that's and that's why Sailors on the Starless Sea was just such a perfect intro. Yes, give me that dragon proud ship. Thank you. And I created the mythology around the the origin of the ship itself. And that just kind of went out there and it works really really well. So, it's my little my little nice. non-appendix end plug. I have two suggestions that I would throw out there. The first is The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon. Uh, and that story, um, it was written in 2000, and it takes place in the early 20th century in New York City. Uh, so it doesn't sound like it's a fantasy novel, um, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot of magic in it, and somebody crafts a golem. And there's some really fascinating, fun elements that are in it that I think you could really incorporate into... Uh, your gaming, and also I just think there's a lot of fun ideas in there worth exploring. Another suggestion I would make is go go read Ready Player One before this um, Steven Spielberg movie comes out. That's likely going to ruin it for people because <laughs> because the book is really fun. And um, for those who don't know the premise of it, it is set in a dystopian future where almost everybody is living in this kind of virtual reality world called the Oasis. It's like the Facebook of virtual reality. And the guy who created it was a uh, young person in the 1970s, and this is now in the future, so he's a very old man and has died at a very old age. But he was obsessed with 70s and early 80s geek culture and had inserted all of these kind of Easter eggs within this virtual reality world related to geek culture from the time. 
including in this world, there is an actual Tomb of Horrors. He has created a Tomb of Horrors in the VR world that people are like trying to find so that they can like solve the mystery of all of his Easter eggs that are hidden throughout the virtual reality world and like win his inheritance. Um, it's a really fun read, and my my fear is that the movie is not going to be good. So uh, please read it before it's ruined for you. Okay, I lied. I have one additional recommendation, and only because I think it may have been translated into Portuguese already. Um, the Gentleman Bastard series by Scott Lynch. The very first one is The Lies of Locke Lamora. And I will just say, think Lankmar plus, oh, 998th Wizard's Conclave. It is a little bit alien, a little bit mystic, a little magic, but a whole lot of rough thieves' lives. And if you have a chance to get the audio version of it, it is, at least the English one, is just a damned performance. So I will always uh, recommend that one. I'm going to have to check that out. And yeah, I could totally see running Lankmar in that setting with the the DCC Lankmar rules. I can see that one of those things where I wish we could get like a cross licensing thing for it. I would oh. totally volunteer to put that together. You know, in all of my copious spare time. I can see so. <laughs> I can see that there is a fiction episode in our future. Don't you think? Mm, yeah, like a non appendix N. Yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> let's uh we'll table that for yeah, a future that's uh, possible. For a future episode brainstorming. If you think it's a good idea, Spellburners. You can email us and let us know, or if you think of a cool twist on a fiction episode, you can let us know. Uh, and speaking of letting us know how mm. you feel about stuff, Jeff, would you like to take the uh, the next one? Yes, I see here we have a letter from uh, Mark Bishop. He says, hello, Spellburnians. Love your show. Heard them all. Put me in the camp of those who think an actual play podcast would be wunderbar. I know that it's a scary thing for any budge, hmm. for any judge, to put themselves out there, but new folks coming into the game learn so much from these recorded games. Play the game, edit edit, edit it down to the juicy parts if you want to keep the podcast flow, and use real tactile dice. I love, love, love John Mars Dice app, but for the podcast, we need to hear those tumbling polyhedrals. A fan, Mark Bishop. Yeah, I think, I think it sounds fun. I think awesome. it sounds like okay. a nightmare of an editing project. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no lie. <laughs> um but yeah i i think it sounds like a great idea and don't worry mark i always keep dice on my desk especially for podcasts because i never know when we're gonna have to roll something up and you are totally right we gotta have the real dice all right thanks jeff thanks mark bishop uh we appreciate the email love to hear your uh people's support and me too's for ideas or creative suggestions for new ideas or twists on old ideas and so on. And we have some weird stuff in the hopper that's pretty half-baked right now, but uh, hopefully we'll have some uh, really interesting stuff coming up in 2018 Spellburn episodes. And don't be afraid to throw more stuff in the hat. Um, stuff. Yay, stuff! Yeah. Uh, along, we are in negotiations. Along <laughs> those lines, and speaking of throwing stuff in the hat... We have a Dungeon Denizen drawing from Stefan Pogue, as I hope most of you know from our last episode. It's posted on our Spellburn site, and various links are floating around G+, uh, 
DCC RPG. Um, so send us a monster write-up for that dungeon denizen. See your name in lights, and maybe there will be some other cool prizes out there for the winner. But um, definitely want we're gonna. It seems like we're gonna have to make this a big deal. You know, um, I think maybe. Um, you know, Judge Jen is gonna, you know, judge you in a live play uh, episode or something. If you no, I, I can't commit. I or stuff uh, or, or stuff. there may be stuff. <laughs> so um, oh, right, or we can do some free editing. Uh, oh. <laughs> wow, so, guys, uh, thanks. <laughs> no, no, You're no. All anyway, off my it's list. a really cool uh, <laughs> drawing. Needless to say, so get your emails in, and with that. I think it's about time uh, to move over to Mighty Deeds and go into our patron discussion. Let the combat begin! To the death! By behold, our hero! Oh, so you want to play rough, eh? Let's take this! Mighty Deeds. All right, so uh, here we are in Mighty Deeds, and we're ready to dig into the meat of this episode's topic of making your own patron. Let's talk a little about patrons first and... You know, often in the Mighty Deeds section, we talk about things from a player point of view. You know, what, what, how have you guys enjoyed a, a patron as a player, if you have? I have only played a player, played a character in Dungeon Crawl Classics with patrons in one shots. Uh, so I've certainly had fun at conventions spell burning the heck out of my invoke patron spell, uh, but I have not really had a player experience of having kind of a, um, a long-running relationship with a patron. Have you, Jen? Um, I haven't. I have judged a campaign where people have long-running uh, relationships, but they were... They've been very seldom used. I think the players are a little bit tentative to give that much of their own... Uh, time and, and to make that commitment really it's like yeah i've got this patron but i know that if i ask him to do something the price is going to be huge and they're not wrong but as a result i i don't get a lot of play from them you mean do you mean uh, that people rule. you know they're getting pregens that have patrons on them but that they're hesitant to go to them um, no, I'm referring to the campaign that I ran for about two and a half years that I'm so hoping to get back off the ground, uh, this fall. And I've got a handful of casters in there that have patrons or even deities, and very few of them reach out to them or invoke them or even talk about them very often. I, I mean, there's plenty that mention them, like, uh... Good old Wilbur the Halfling mentions Cezarkon all the time, because Cezarkon's his best friend. But he never, or I should say, maybe once or twice in those two years, summoned him. Or invoked him, rather. Do we use patrons enough, or, or not? Yeah, that's a good question, because also, because I'm thinking while listening to this, that it would maybe be better for me if during my games, um, no, granted, I've not run a long-term campaign, in DCC, but I think uh, like right now I'm I'm rereading uh, Fafford. I'm, I'm rereading the the Swords Against Wizardry book right now, and I'm noticing how uh, Shilba and uh, Nimgobble just kind of uh, 
insert themselves into Fafnir and Grey Master's lives and just kind of give them assignments, even when they haven't gone to them asking for anything. Uh, they just suddenly make their presence known and start demanding things. And I think that maybe if I, maybe one takeaway from this conversation is that if I do start, not if, when I start running a long-term DCC campaign, maybe I'll make my, my, my patrons a little more obnoxious and entitled and uh, have them kind of insert themselves a little more forcefully, uh, even when they're not being invoked. You know, uh, yes, exactly what you said there. And, you know, I, uh, I've i run uh, two campaigns in DCC, and one uh, featured Cezricon as a semi-obnoxious uh, patron, and he was often sort of a MacGuffin, well, you need to go here and do this, you know, type of thing to get us, you know, into the next adventure or something sometimes. But um, a little bit of the plot, the plot device, device, which was yeah. handy because, you know, he was making everybody risk their necks. But at the same time, uh, you know, we got into Michael or Harley's or what have you's next adventure that way, too, which is all good. But, you know, I wonder if we don't, especially convention games where the patron stuff becomes a mechanic almost, you know, we we maybe just don't really bring that flavor of DCC out enough. I'm going to have to challenge myself to, good point. to I, really I'm, play that to the hilt. I, I'm definitely with you on that one. Everyone, it's funny because as the player base, if you look at, say, the G plus community, I want a patron for this, or I want a patron for this. Okay, great. Now you have this patron created what did you do with it? What did you use it for? Is the patron just an over-complicated NPC? Or is it this deity-like power that hardly anyone's going to interact with? Absolutely. And I feel like right now, both in the way that I occasionally judge this stuff and the way that it has been judged for me in, in one-shot uh, scenarios... It almost does seem like oftentimes the patrons are underused and instead end up just becoming a list of new spell. When I am playing a game at a convention, if I have a wizard or an elf with a patron versus when I play a cleric, I feel more connected to my deity as a cleric. So I, hmm, I challenge you with that. Well, it's, so um, that's a great point. And I would say that the this this comes into our whole discussion about uh, what's the difference between, you know, clerics and wizards and their relationships with patrons and uh, gods, right? Well, and it, right, because I feel like for a cleric, their entire spell list is their deity's choice, as opposed to just one or two spells maybe that you've gotten from your patron after having to jump well, through hoops and, for and it. And the founders of our... Of our republic, uh, or I mean, sorry, the the original uh, uh, cooks of this stew that we have uh, served up, um, <laughs> the the original framers, if you will, um, may really go out of their way. Like if you read the supernatural patron part of the rule book, like three twenty and so on, um, they talk about the they actually make this point: a cleric worships a deity out of shared belief, common alignment, and so on. And the wizard pursues a patron strictly in the pursuit of power, nothing more. So with a, with a cleric, um, and we should emphasize this probably to our players more, you know, and even try to run that as judges more. But 
um, and we should play that. And, you know, honestly, we're all players. We should play this way, right? But, you know, our clerics are believers and they're signed up for, you know, as fanatics, essentially, right? And wizards, on the other hand, are mercenaries more in the sense of they're trying to use their patron relationship to get power and to get spells or to learn useful uh you know secrets that will further their power or their other goals right so um which kind kind of emphasizes the feeling of being more connected to a deity when you're playing a cleric because even even laying on hands you're channeling your your god's power and and desire through yourself I think one interesting example in the DCC core book is Babugba Bills, because Babugba Bills is listed as both a patron and a god. So if we're playing what is written and using the core book, um, I, you can use Babugba Bills in either way. And currently in my, in my road crew game with my meetup group, we have a third level cleric of Babugba Bills named Volrath. And in that, with that situation, since he worships the, this frog god, it makes sense that all of his life choices his uh what he wears how he speaks how he interacts with the world is seen through the lens of the swamp that makes sense to me and then when you're a wizard who has babugba bills as your patron that that's not necessarily the case you know you may have just kind of you may have just kind of struck some kind of a bargain with this very strange creature who you may or may not find completely repulsive or repugnant but you've got some kind of but there's something you're getting out of it which is which is uh Exciting. So I can see why, as a patron, it doesn't need to be kind of the, the the kind of core foundation that you're building your character upon. But with a with a cleric, you might want to do that. Now, as for the the god providing the spell list, this is where I start to get uncomfortable and a little frustrated with the game systems. Is like I don't understand why, like for example, this third level cleric Volrath, one of his spells is uh, wood weirding, which is a second level cleric spell in DCC. And it's a spell where you can shape wood into other shapes and do things weird with it. And it's like, I don't understand why only a god can provide that particular spell. I don't understand mm -hmm. why only a guide, only a god can provide a lot of the spells that are listed in the cleric list. Like, why aren't these also available to wizards? That's, that's what doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it's uh, why because it was a druid spell in AD and D. That's why. I mean, come on. I mean, a lot, a lot of the. Of course, those little funky things come from, you know, that heritage. But of course, you're right, Jeff. I mean, they, that is indeed true that these it, they do seem awfully arbitrary. Although if you if you think about it as a druid spell, I think it was warp wood in the old AD&D system, maybe something like that. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes more sense for druids than it might, you know, in just a clerical way. You go, well, how is it different from other types of things? Anyway, we could talk all day about about that kind of stuff, but your point is well taken. The 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 demarcation between what's a, a wizard spell and a cleric spell do, does seem pretty arbitrary sometimes. Yeah. I think the the player classes make a certain amount of sense. Um, if I mean, at least are are fairly well demarcated. If you think a wizard is learning spells and chasing power for whatever personal goals he has. And a cleric is a fanatic and a zealot, right? I mean, those are two pretty different models, whether they're a good zealot, a bad zealot, or somewhere in between. Um, 
they, they, you know, that is the fundamental difference. And even though there's not a lot of examples in Appendix N necessarily, you know, you could think of the Knights of the Round Table in Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur or something. Some of them were fairly, they may not have been churchmen per se, but they were extremely holy and, um, you know, they were certainly like paladins, right? And they were very, uh, you know, connected to their God and going out and doing good deeds in the name of the Holy One and, and you know, that kind of model. Okay, pulling it back to patrons. Okay, because we we got we got land of clerks. Yes, uh, we're um, we're with you, but <laughs> but my last I, my last thing is to go back to the earlier question about clerics. Sorry, I'm going to go back. the uh, The reason that humans are the only clerics and there's not a racial analog for that is because humans are more short lived than the other races, at least traditionally in the old game, and thus. Even though they tried to put, they tried to put those all those other ah. elf gods and dwarf god, all that stupid stuff. But at the end of the day, really, what's going on there is humans are so short-lived and stupid and scatterbrained that we have to have gods and higher powers because our wisdom is very low, <laughs> and uh, we just we have to have that. You know, we can't. Other <laughs> other races are wider, wiser, and they have other things to get them through, like beards. But humans. Humans um, are just fragile. We're, our, our psyches are fragile, and we need gods. Okay, that's it. So, and and to take this uh, half step in the other direction, there, you don't have to be a wizard or an elf to have a patron. There are particular things. I'm going to reference the Tower of the Black Pearl by Harley Stroh. There are instances where anybody can gain a patron. Now the difference on that I would say is uh, I believe the instance there is it's an automatic once you do X or touch X item uh, you roll for the patron bond spell so there's no preparatory action there's no like spell burning for it it's just a cause and effect kind of thing and because of this instance now again you know the little halfling Wilbur has Cezarkon as a patron. So you don't have to be a casting uh, class to have a patron, but I'm guessing that you do have to if you want to be able to cast anything besides invoke patron and, you know, using the D10 or D14 or non, you know, whatever nonsense. I would also add to that, they don't say this in the core book, but I think this goes without saying that you also don't need to be a cleric to have a god because I think of Conan um, constantly referring to Krom. Now, Krom doesn't help Conan because Krom doesn't help anybody. But, um, but you know, Conan is constantly invoking Krom's name. But then it's more, also kind of more specifically, I think of like Hercules and how Hercules is not a cleric, mm-hmm. but Hercules was constantly um, having his affairs meddled with by the gods uh, and the gods are playing a big role in Hercules' uh, story. And I feel like that's another that's a good example of how the gods can play a part in your characters' lives without having a character class at all. But even if you do have character classes, uh, without having a cleric class at all, rather, but even if you do have cleric classes, I don't think it's only cleric to the gods that you interact with. And uh, as the campaign showed, when uh, deity disapproval occurred, yeah, okay, so the cleric has to convert X number of people to his religion before he can continue casting. Yes. Turned up as one of the results. 
So in order to get healed, well, you have to make that promise to convert is how it was played out. And so now, yeah, over half the party has the same deity. And it has come up that somebody wanted, you know, it was a dire situation. I let them roll a d10 plus their level for uh, divine intervention. Nice. I like that. I mean, they have the deity. So, yeah, you can't, you're not attuned to the lay on hand stuff, but you have converted. It's going to be the same thing as a non-caster class having a patron. You'll be able to do an invoke action. I like it. So there's lots of lots of options, lots of instances of of yeses and nos. And Julian, I would like to apologize for constantly pulling us onto this uh, clerical and god tangent. This is I take complete responsibility <laughs> for the uh, backsliding that's happening in this conversation. Completely. Well, I it's our podcast, and we can do whatever we want. So, um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like move on. <laughs> so in fact, uh, we are gonna go. I'm not ready to let it go. We, are, we uh, I think we've had a good discussion. I'm not sure it was from a player point of view entirely, but hey, um, uh, I think we talked about players. So I'm gonna count that, and we're gonna go to Mercurial Magic, and we are gonna work on this new patron. Ek imka et All my life, I've studied the black arts. She was a. Mercurial Magic. All right, here we are in Mercurial Magic, and our assigned task is to take the winning patron suggestion, and we're not going to, of course, obsessively stat him up, um, which would be, you know, several thousand words uh, right on the show, but I do kind of want to flesh him out in a sort of brainstorm session here, or I should say flesh him slash her slash it out in a brainstorm session here because what we came up with um thank you to noah stevens uh via g plus dcc community uh is what we are calling white which is a uh an acronym w-i-g-h-t to be uh to really describe this i on a sunday morning which is probably not a high traffic time but that's when the inspiration hit me. I said, hey, give us some patron ideas. And we got everything from Colonel Sanders to White. But And I asked people to just give some one-liners. <laughs> Actually, we got a lot of pretty cool suggestions. We got a, a fair amount of kind of flippant, silly suggestions, but they were fun to read. Um, ferret familiar. Yeah, there was like I a want ferret, ferret guy. familiars. Um, but Noah gave us like, <laughs> he may have won on virtue of how many... He dumped like eight or ten of them at once, and it was pretty fun. And there, there were actually a lot of really cool ones just in his list. Um, but this is the one that grabbed me right away. Um, and he said, white, acronym, no explanation of the acronym, by the way, which is a shadowy collective of former Justicia clerics and adventurers bent on exposing corruption in the church. End quote. So that's that was his one-liner, um, and I loved it. I thought the idea of having a group as a patron instead of a typical, you know, like old bearded, uh, you know, uh, spell grubber or demon or um, neo god or whatever was kind of a cool idea. So uh, anyway, white is our winner, 
and um, I took a hack at the acronym. Uh, do you guys want the acronym, or should I? Do you like it without the acronym? No, I, I, I like. Uh, I know you came up with one, and I came up with one, so I think it would be fun to share both of them. But I think you and I okay. were kind of envisioning white as a, in a slightly different way. So I think this will be this will be fun and interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, which uh, which is perfect. And, and you really. know what I'm trying to mimic here in this episode as we go through the patron development is the sort of brainstorming process where you create a patron. You, you get an idea and you start flushing it one way and then you get a second idea and then you go, oh, you know, that might even be cooler. And so, you know, like going through that process and thinking two or three things and throwing out one and building one and flipping it around, you know, that's all part of what we're doing. So, um, you know, I raised the question of whether they should be altruistic or whether they were in fact... Um, you know, are they actually some kind of group that's trying to, you know, expose corruption and overturn the church for their own ends? Um, but either way, I call them the wandering insurgents for the glory of the high temple. Um, so I guess that sounds kind of altruistic in that they're trying to uh, <clears throat> make Justicia great again or something. So, um, yeah... Okay, sorry. Very <laughs> oh, sorry. So, uh, <laughs> uh, well, and Jeff. One thing I like about about Julian's acronym is I feel like so so Noah Stevens described it as a shadowy collective of former Justicia clerics and adventurers bent on exposing corruption in the church. So I feel like yours does a really good job of latching on to the fact that they are a collective of people because that's pretty uh, pretty clearly stated there. Um, one one thing that I really latched onto was that they were former Justicia clerics. So in my mind, these were people who have left the church and likely are quite um, cynical about it, um, or perhaps even like filled with like hate and venom and a desire to like destroy the church. I'm kind of thinking about like throughout my life, I've known some some people who were raised in very specific religions and as adults, like actively. Um, really, really dislikely. So what I was thinking is that white could stand for, because perhaps these people have gathered together with the intent of bringing down the church. And I had white standing for wickedness inside the godless house of treachery. And what they were trying to do is uh, they had collected together to destroy all of the white that they were encountering, the wickedness inside the godless house of treachery. And that perhaps we gathered together all of their collective trauma and anger or whatever surrounding the temple um, has kind of manifested itself into kind of its own kind of force and entity and being that it kind of coalesced into this, like um, it, 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 into a being of its own essentially. But that does kind of deviate a bit from the idea that the actual patron itself is a collective of people. Cause at this point then it ceases to be one. But I don't well, know. What do you guys think? But it's definitely a shadowy collective. That's true. Yeah, it's a it's a shadowy collective of people's uh, trauma hmm. and anger. I I I think that's totally legit um, hmm. in terms of interpreting our one word or one sentence direction from Judge Noah. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. I, well, I in my mind is I there a just middle like ground? The maybe because. I know we're 
biting off probably more than we had set out to chew, but I just love the idea of it being a group. You know, it's such a different idea to have it be a group, you know? I like that as well. Right. It, it, there is now the trio of the three fates who are provided at, at least the basic write-up and the Invoke Patron in the DCC book. But I like the fact that this sounds like a jaded group of such. Yeah, and it and it's not just oh the fates you know they determine everything that goes on in life period and this is bent on exposing corruption in the church is very very specific and honestly even if you weren't a former cleric i think you could still fit into white oh cuz it even specifically says um, clerics former clerics and adventurers Right. And so that almost, to me, my brain is almost going to a, a collective, like a very high level adventuring party that has retired from adventuring. And now this is their goal. So they are now the patrons or the driving forces, if you will, behind the characters in a new adventure. What I'm hearing from, really from both of you, and I thought of it a few different ways, but I, I'm pretty much there too, is the white, the, the, the white or white or whatever you want to call it, is definitely a an organization that actually values and esteems Justicia, but, um, but not its servants. I'm not, I'm, yeah, I like that. More more so than just the heroic, altruistic characterization. I mean, Jeff, uh, are you good with that? or I am. And one, th- one place I'm starting to kind of think about as well is kind of following this and uh, going with this and building on it is I kind of, in my mind, wrap my brain around how a group of folks can be a source of um, of magic power that you that you that you uh, that you summon and you call upon, ah. and I'm coming up with with with, right. a, with a potential answer to this. And it's coming from two different sources in my mind. In the Appendix H episode that we had two episodes ago, I mentioned the films of the blind dead, and I mentioned how these um, how these former uh, Knights Templar had been murdered centuries ago, but that their corpses were still rising and and kind of uh, doing all this mayhem. And then I'm also thinking about how, because I just finished rereading Swords Against Wizardry, how in um, is the Thieves' House, how you've got the the kind of mummified former thieves in like, the basement of the Thieves' Guild, and how Swords they... Against Death. Swords Against Death. Thank you, thank you. I keep yes. saying the wrong title. Uh, Swords That's Against okay. Death. How you've got the former thieves who are kind of like mummified in the in the in, deep in the bowels of the Thieves' Guild, and how they've kind of developed these supernatural powers. So I almost wonder. If white is a is a collective of former justicia clerics and adventurers who are bent on disposing corruption in the church, but justicia and their clerics actually defeated them and were successfully able to mostly destroy them and bury them, but there's but but in doing so, uh, however that was done, they have since kind of become this like kind of undead force that's buried beneath that is still like uh, aching to bring down the church. Hmm. Oh yes, God! You're exactly. likening them to the gods of Lankmar. So, so <laughs> I love you. So, <laughs> so obviously wow. the uh, the linkage is too that uh, of course the white is an old D and D undead creature, yes. right? So that it, you're tying it straight back from the name to the uh, 
the old AD&D white, which was kind of a junior wraith, right? Like, you weren't quite, you know, you're Absolutely. a little more yeah. evil than a ghoul. You're not quite enough wraith level, you know, but... Yes, um, and we'll pretend that I did that intentionally. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like that. Thanks, Noah Stevens. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know what? I'm, I love that, and I think we'll... we'll why don't we go with that? So um, I'm just going to summarize this. There is a group of Justicia clerics who were murdered and, um, you know, entombed. Uh, maybe they were buried alive and they were, uh, but they're reaching from beyond the grave to influence other clerics and adventurers and have them avenge their deaths as well as uh, expose the evil of the ruling uh, clerics regime. Well, and if, if other adventurers were with them at the time, uh, maybe they still have the use of some of the powers within the magic items they had been carrying. Hmm. Hmm. Which would explain how the thieves, the war, you know, the and adventurers that we wrap it, wrap up all of what Noah gave us. I, it's a stretch, perhaps, but oh, it's out no, there. I, I, and certainly wizards. Or, you know, they may have entombed wizards and what have you. Even halflings who could, you know, bless people with their dual-wielding ability. Uh, you know, whatever. So, anyway. Um, and extra luck, in, invoke, yes. Invoke um, patron gets you a hmm. D16. Uh, anyway. So, um, <laughs> okay. I think we... You really could just go through the list on that for the invoke patron uh, <laughs> results. Yeah, g give them one blessing based on each class. Mm, eh, maybe a little yeah, cleric heavy though. Yeah. It, it'd have to be cleric heavy. Yeah. You're right. That's 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 so, interesting. Though. I like okay. the concept a lot. I think we we got a good concept. Are you guys good with this? Okay. Sure. Let's go to so patron. So I I don't know how you guys feel about this, but when and i've written written up quote unquote three patrons for my nowhere city project as well as helped a little bit here and there with some other stuff and you know it seems like well you write some blurbage about the about the patron he or him him or herself or whatever and then uh and then you write a bunch of spells and then you write some invoke patron stuff and spellburn and patron taint and three you know three spells so uh, and Spellburn, and right. yeah. And, uh, you know, so those things are awesome. They're full of flavor. They're really great. I was reading through Cesricon again today, and it never really gets old. I mean, the, the Spellburn and Patron Taint stuff there is just <laughs> awesome. So, um, you know, but I also wanted to kind of stretch the, the model a little bit, because I don't think... So if you read all these patrons that have been published, sometimes they're published as add-ons and adventures or... Or, you know, of course, there's angels being daemons and beings in between and so on, uh, which, you know, they have, there's all kinds of great third-party patrons and so on. Um, they're typically kind of follow this formula. We're going to have an invoke patron chart. We're going to have special patron-appropriate spellburn. We're going to have these special patron taints, which are very flavorful for the patron. And then yes. I'm going to give you spells. I'm going to give you three spells, and one is going to be first level, and one hmm. is going to be second level, and one is going to be third level. But yes. usually. Well, that's what I've usually seen. I, I can't think of too many exceptions. Do you, you have an exception for us? There are, there are, there are ones where they give you less, right? Like um, I'm 
pretty sure some of the recent ones from the Sanctum Sacorum companion zine give like one, two, and two, or two, three, and five mm. for for the levels of spell, just because the one, two, first, second, third thing yeah. is just getting old. Good for you guys for mixing that up. Yeah, tear down the patriarchy. <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly where I'm going. Um, yes, <laughs> the the number archy. Well, I. Can we tear down the patron taint then, too? Because, I mean, this is all about, you know, ways in which the caster begins to resemble the patron. And it usually occurs only when someone critically fails that spell check. It's almost like, is this the slap on the wrist? Is this the reminder to do better? Or is it a reminder to invoke the patron more often for help? Or is it just... You have failed, but now you must remember me and start becoming me. I, I don't really uh, get the flavor of, of patron taint, in its entirety. And, and I, I get your, I get what you're getting at specifically. Um, I get what you're getting at generally. I think specifically with white, though, I think we can make patron taint actually make some sense because, in a sense, white is a cursed entity or a cursed group of people. Uh, who had been defeated by Justicia and want to want to get their revenge or whatever, and I think with Patron Taint, it could be that the curse that is that is keeping them down, um, as you're trying to take on their powers, you start to kind of take on parts of their curse as well. So maybe as mm. you're getting more and more Patron Taint, you're getting more and more of this this curse that is upon them onto yourself as well. So perhaps you start kind of having a harder time kind of connecting to the gods, or perhaps you start kind of taking on an air of death yourself, uh, things like that. I don't know. I, how often does patron tank come up in your games, though? Oh, I've never had it happen. Uh, I've, so that's I've had why it happen. I'm wondering, I've had it maybe... happen once or twice, maybe. Exactly, once or twice. Maybe it should be built in to invoke patron a little bit more. Or maybe it should be, a, I mean, like there are some... Like every time you invoke your patron you get a level of patron taint or or something to remind you of your patron yeah yeah and to remind you of the debt that you now owe them yeah or perhaps when you cast one of your first second or third level spells and you roll a natural one there's no chance of misfire or corruption you just take on patron taint well that that's a possibility too yeah it also falls under how often does that really happen though guys Think of how cool, I just want to say this as an, as an aside, think of how cool it would be to be, if you really want to do the patron thing and really explore the craziness of it, if you had a wizard who didn't give a damn about Justicia in the slightest, but was bonded to these guys because they were going to show him where the, you know, talisman of MacGuffinhood is hidden in the <laughs> temple of, of, you know, in the temple of whatever. And uh, so, in fact, he doesn't even give a damn, but he's trying to figure out in a very scoundrelly way exactly what's going on. Meanwhile, they're like, you've got to expo- you must fight against the evil in the temple. And he's like, where, where is that? You know, I don't know. You could just, because to inf- even though they're true believers, the wizard who chooses them is not necessarily, right? I mean, it's really a... Uh... That's true. He He could be not religious at all or just... Uh, yeah, completely disbelieving in them and their cause. Hmm. Well, them being white. Can you imagine how <laughs> yes. pissed off they would be? Anyway. Well, see, then they might actually get patron yes, taint. Yes, exactly. 
<laughs> well, and so and so, Jen, this is a perfect example of what you're talking about, where patron taint, by all means, could and should work differently for this patron. If you are, it might just be related to if you're using spells that are not advancing the cause of justice, at least justice, if not directly exposing the misdeeds of Justicia's clerics, then you have a higher or high or guaranteed uh, chance of getting patron taint. At that point, the judge should see fit to assign a point or a level of patron taint at, at some point instead of reducing their lock by one. Since it's essentially, uh, you know, there's the big section in the book. Well, okay, not big, but there is a section in the judge's chapter about awarding luck and taking luck away for not following your alignment. So that could potentially be a replacement. I just, I think if you're going to have the, the trouble of patron tank being in there at, you know, two or three hundred words per patron, do something with it. Make it make it a little bit more prevalent as opposed to just, oh, that's the section I need to ignore unless I roll a one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I dig that. And, and I really dig it because since we were talking in the early stages about, you know, how to make patrons a bigger, more vital part of the game for everybody, I mean, that would put them right in the player's face and it would increase everybody's role playing. The GMs, as the <clears throat> excuse me, the judges, as well as the... Um, <laughs> as well as the players, so yeah, good save, yeah. And also, Love since it. people really Yay! like to spell burn around their invoke patron results, perhaps you can tie in your patron taint to your spell burning. And any time that you're spell burning to get a higher result, you're making yourself uh, more and more vulnerable to uh, to the power and the curse of white. And perhaps you take on patron taint every time you spell burn a white spell. Thank you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. Are you just trying to? Are Yay. you just trying oh, to? Th- this is chewy. I like just it. Getting out of this. Are you trying to mechanically get out of doing both spellburn and patron taint? So you're trying to turn in like 500 Ooh. less words here. Is that it? You know. Uh, <laughs> um. You know, I don't really see a problem with that. If it makes sense, I'm good. I'm totally good. So. I mean, thematically, I think it does. Yeah. No, I agree. And in fact, you know, to make sure people don't feel ripped off, we could, you know, another funny thing is what they always do, like six spellburn results and four patron taints or or the other way around, something like that. So we could do 10. Just blend them and give a list of 10. Yep. So you don't. Blend them. Nobody yep. feels or you can so still have both tables, and, and you can when do, you roll on the spellburn table, uh, it'll also say and also wait. roll on the patron taint table. So now you're getting you're you're gonna have the results of your spellburn and the and the random result of your patron taint, and both of them are gonna happen oh, in every spellburn. <laughs> Ooh, that's Love heavy. It. Yeah. Okay, so guys, throw out some flavor for invoke patron. What uh, what kind of stuff is invoke patron? You have you you have taken as your patron these undead undash dead um, servants of Justicia who are moldering and who are bitter about their fate and want to expose the wickedness of Justicia's leadership, the 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 uh, and the corruption, the corruption rather, of the uh, of Justicia's regime. So, what uh, what invo- what are they going to bl- bless you with? 
when you invoke them to further their goal. I could see one being a curse of the truth where um, or when you or when you invoke the patron, any clerics of justicia um, or anybody who's claiming to be a cleric or a servant of justicia um, must only speak the truth in your presence. Mm. Or better yet, yeah, maybe nice. not even just speak the truth, but they must uh, confess their sins. Forceful, con- forceful confessions. <laughs> wow. Wow. Hmm. So- or anytime, anytime they are in a place of religious devout, uh, true seeing. So they can see past the corruption or past the veils that have been put hmm. up. So it's basically a kind of a half infiltration, half investigation type um, thing where they will bless. You know, you you might be, have your back up against the wall trying to figure out if a if somebody isn't going to be an ally or an enemy, or if they're trying to deceive you, of course. And you would cast it in order to you know make sure that you're not that this this uh bunch of uh clerics claiming to want to do the right thing are not actually a coven uh who's secretly worshiping uh Ozzy Osbourne or yeah. something <laughs> and, and and in addition they would give you like plus one die on your will saves against them yeah, and their Yeah I could see it really being a very helpful tool during an interrogation Mm-hmm. That's when you want to pull out yeah, your invoke and, patron and, and invoke and invoke white, and and then you know so that it's usable outside of a particular uh, circumstance. You know, continue to give the bonuses to will saves or to um, even fortitude saves for the entire party for the better of the over overarching cause. I, I mean, otherwise, if they're out in the wilderness and there's nobody related to this plot, it's gonna seem a little weak. I, I love it. So that way it, keep, it keeps them pertinent. Oh, and I agree. And when I said earlier, you know, if it's a cleric of justicia, I, it's, we'll strike that part. I really feel like the spell should work against anybody, because that, that's way too specific. Yeah, um... Maybe a good cleric, or maybe any cleric, or maybe any believer, or something. I mean, it's going to have different results, right? So some things might be targeted more at believers, but other things might be toward, tied, uh, targeted more at deception in general and stuff like that, right? And of course, yeah, more broad yeah. and and powerful as you uh, ascend the scale, of course. And maybe some of the higher level ones are to avoid your entire group being captured like they mm-hmm. were. Hmm, yes. So so um Spellburn and Patron Taint. We have we jump back to invoke patron. I like I think we're good there. Spellburn and Patron Taint. I threw out the idea of combined table. Uh, we also talked about, you know, kind of Spellburn could activate patron taint. Oh, you know. Also, roll d4 on patron taint, uh, which is a. Mm-hmm. Let's make a choice. Which one do we want to do? Well, um, I had one idea and Julian had another. So, Jen, which one? Which one do you think we should go with? Who's your favorite? Yeah, yeah, Jen. <laughs> who's your real friend? Uh, depends. It it depends. Who's uh, who's writing? I can't bring Banamicon. <laughs> well, let's. Um, oh, Jen, we didn't we didn't talk to you, you know, about doing I... the patron write up, did we? 
Oh yeah, yeah. I kind, I actually kind of like uh, blending them because that's where I was going in the first okay, place. Great. No, the, what kind of stuff? What kind know, of stuff I is know, it going to be, guys? I what know. are we going to do for the when you are uh, for yeah. the spells? Well, no, for the oh, for the spell oh, burn and the for patron, the patron taint. taint? Yeah. Oh, jeez. Well, um, I think for one of the patron taint kind of ideas is uh, since they have been since they are kind of undead creatures that are kind of trapped deep below the earth. I think you're going to start to take on uh, the semblance of the dead. That's for sure. I think that's one of the things that's going to start to follow you rot and decay i think that's kind of an, an, an obvious part of it maybe the smell may, maybe some more mm-hmm. of the uh, undead traits mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. monsters that's one aspect yeah of it. that's and that's good you know for for spellburn i mean so many people like to chop off fingers or break their fingers and uh maybe even after healing uh since it's going to be blended with patron taint um yeah they grow back at a much slower rate even after your hit points are healed back Ooh, that's an interesting one it kind of ties to what i was thinking which is i was thinking specifically of like you know religious zealots be doing flagellation self-flagellation and stuff like that and hmm. I'm I'm imagining that these guys who were killed and have now formed the white are, um, you know, <laughs> were very zealous. And, you know, so they actually were whipping themselves. and Oh, in the beginning, yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. So they yeah. would be, um, uh, you know, so I'm imagining that that would be... That's great. Mm-hmm. At least a way of spellburn, right? That there would be, you can, you can, you... Caster removes his or her shirt and whips himself on the back six times and, you know, or whatever, or, um, you know, or does something painful, you know, walks across a, lays down a bed of nails and, well, I don't know, but you'd, you'd have to... It must cast from upon that, yeah. yeah. And kind of along those lines, I think another one that would work well is I'm thinking of the um, the kind of statues of saints that weep blood and then also kind of tying mm-hmm. that into like the blindfolds of justice and how they're being perverted because of what's going on with white and perhaps having some kind of like a veil of blood in terms of like your eyes. So one of your spell burns could be one of the spell burn effects could be that your eyes start to bleed. Hmm. Um, and that is now like interfering with your with your vision and also, you know, causing the, the, the hurt that you're getting from your spell burn. Uh, but also kind of tying it into like the blindfold of just of justice, and then it continues even though it doesn't interfere with your vision. It you continue yes. to weep blood yeah. at least mm. once a day. Wow! As the patron taint, as it escalates. <laughs> oh, that's dark. Yeah. I like it. Okay. Thanks, Jen. I thought you were the nice one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you clearly haven't read anything I've written for Sanctum. <laughs> now I'm going to have nightmares. I take the dark stuff. Yep. Um, so, okay, that, that's a few great ideas there. What would you think for spells, though, Julian? Well, well I ha- I had um, come up with an idea for a first level spell, and Julian had kind of come up with an idea for a second level spell. And the first level spell I had thought ah. of was one that might be called Forsaken. And the way the Forsaken spell would work is when you cast Forsaken, at the very lowest level, what it does is... Because essentially what this Forsaken spell would do is it would cause a disruption between a caster and their god. So it makes it so that you are causing a cleric to lose connection 
with um, with their magic source and their god. So the lowest level, if you cast it against a cleric, all it's really going to do is just Ooh. give them a minus to that cleric spell check roll. So like maybe like the very lowest result might just be like a minus two on their next spell check. But then if you like really spell burn and or you get to like a critical or something, the very highest level of the of the spell might end up causing all of the clerics in the immediate vicinity to become permanently disconnected from their god. And they'll have to quest to actually get reconnected to their god. Enemy clerics, not any in your party. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Correct. Important distinctions hey, they, there. Um, I like yes. that. It's it's dirty pool. Hey, depending, I like it. Yeah. It's specific. You have to find the right the right time to use it. But if you do have the right time to use it, it can be very helpful. And maybe if it's cast within the temple of those clerics, there's a little bump to that too. Oh yeah, mm. you're like desanctifying their their place as well. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> Dirty pool. Very cool. I like it. And then what would the the second be? Is the- that what? Second level, you know, is that what I, you were going? So I'm kind of, I, Jen, I'm inspired by what you were saying before, and I was already thinking in those terms anyway, of doing like different levels, you know, then first, second, third. So I'm going to just, okay. I'm going to just, you know, I'm shooting two ideas out there. I think one would be a third and one would be a fifth. Ooh. So my, my third would be um, that people so the the third one is called soul of the truth or truth of the soul or something like that and it would actually expose people who have chaos or evil or wickedness in their hearts and you know it starts off in a this is not an interrogation spell where you're actually seeing stuff this is actually something that you could cast on people in public and it actually turns them you know maybe it turns them green if they're chaotic or maybe it starts to actually um actually turn them into monster you know like actually at one point it's kind of illusion turning them into monsters and of course at the very highest level you're able to like shift people into physically altered semi-monstrous beings permanently if they have evil and wickedness in their hearts Will this spell make them more powerful? Hmm. Will they be a big, powerful, evil, wicked demon? Because in some situations, that actually might be in their favor. Um, you know, I would leave that up to the judge. At the highest level, I think that's a, a good... I think the judge <laughs> should make that and take it and run with it. That's a great idea. And I'd, that'd be a great last sentence of the spell would hmm. be, Note... For that yeah, no. Plus. Turn, doing yeah. this to a tenth-level <laughs> cleric and turning him into a, the equivalent demon lord will probably increase his or her power immensely, and etc. 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 Hmm. Interesting. So that would that would show anything like corruption or? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. My 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 fifth-level <laughs> idea. And by the way, guys, you can. You can, you know, elaborate, et cetera, as, as much as you want, twist, turn, plot twists, et cetera. My fifth level idea would be repel the unfaithful and would actually be to physically be able to drive those who are probably not just, you know, not in your religion, right? Because I'm not, I don't think like that anyway. I'm an ecumenical guy. But, um... But probably people of opposing <laughs> alignments or perhaps especially geared towards hypocrites or um, 
blasphemers and so on, where you could actually physically push them back, you know, drive them away, maybe, maybe, uh, I'm almost thinking of a, of a magnet's repulsion. And at a at a very high level, picking up, Jeff, on what you are saying before about desanctifying, at the highest levels, this very powerful spell could even knock down opposing gods' temples. So it's almost a, a version of turn unholy. It almost skirts that line of arcane versus divine magic. It sounds to me like an anarchist turn unholy turned up to 11. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you're not wrong, There you Jenna. go. I would say it is like a um, secular, it's a little bit like a secular or an, you could call it an anarchist turn unholy uh, that because it can work, it works on the faithful rather than, uh, you know, undead and demons and so on. It's very powerful, but hey, it fits all the spells, pretty freaking powerful. So, you know, so you have to whip yourself be, and everything. Ooh, yeah, you've got to yeah. be way up there. <laughs> yes, spellburn yes. required for this one. Now, I also wonder if perhaps we could have another spell in here that is playing on the fact that this, that this creature is called a white and that these creatures are undead, and perhaps it would be a spell that is um, something equivalent to a level drain that is applying to the to wicked people. Like uh, you cast this against somebody who, for whatever reason, you think is wicked, and it causes them to get weaker, and it has like a, a like level, if not a level drain, like a hit die drain kind of effect as well. Hmm. I okay. First of all, I love the idea of summoning quote-unquote whites for the for a it could also be one of your one or two roles on your invoke oh. patron thing that you summon a group of vengeful blah blahs mm -hmm. to come and pull down your enemies um but additionally jeff as as you said that like this it. could apply to anything we have said as into any of these spells what if <laughs> what what if <laughs> There's nothing in the spell, or very little in the spells, that actually mechanically require you to do this to mm -hmm. non-believers and, uh, you know, wicked people and stuff. But, but, it's up to the patrons themselves to enforce it. Yeah. <laughs> if, the, if the caster is screwing around and using it on goblins and stuff, you know... The patron shows up and says, hey, I, I did not give you the spell for that. Yes, absolutely. So in the general write-up, exactly, if, if used against the um, the purpose of the spell, yeah, with the underlying message, yeah, patron taint. And or the Wrath of White. Oh, that's pretty. There's, I need to type a, that in there's here. There's a... Um, there's a patron taint result where the third occurrence is like they all show up and take you to hell, right? I mean, obviously. Yes. Or to be interned, or to be interred alive with them until, of course, you become one of their own. Well, guys, I think we've got a pretty good, okay. a pretty good skeleton <laughs> uh, of a patron here. Oh God! That's we my were doing line. so well. That's my line. <laughs> is it because I didn't choose your patron taint idea? Come on. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thanks, guys. This has been a fun episode. Uh, I think we had a great idea from Judge Noah, and uh, thanks to everybody, uh, you know, not just Judge Noah, but everybody who uh, contributed ideas. There's a lot of cool stuff, 
And uh, we'll make that list public somewhere, too, so people can uh, have a chuckle or think of some great stuff for the future. And we will publish a full patron write-up, as promised, um, at some point in the next month or two, based on white. Unless somebody beats me to it. <laughs> so if you want to do it yourself, based on our ideas and a few of your own, by all means, send it to Spellburn, and we'll publish it somewhere uh, on our site. So feel free also. Uh, with that, thanks for listening. Keep the emails coming. Uh, give us some ratings on iTunes. Uh, we appreciate your uh, listenership. And uh, that's it. This is Judge Julian. Uh, and all I have to say is game on. And this is Judge Jeff. Keep on trucking. And Judge Jen will kindly remind everyone it's the band at spellburn.com. You've been listening to Spellburn. Copyright 2017. Theme song has been graciously provided by Glitter Wizard. Learn more at glitterwizard.fancamp.com.